Good morning, church family. As I've noted before, we have three objects front and center in this auditorium. We have uh, the pulpit right before me. We have a baptistry directly behind me. And then we have a communion table just a little in front. And the activities associated with these three objects really form the essence of local church ministry. So here at the pulpit is where God's Word is preached. And the Scriptures teach us that the communication of the Word of God is the most fundamental task of the local church. We preach it, we teach it, we counsel, we evangelize through the Word. Then the baptistry, that is where those who have responded to the preaching of God's Word publicly declare their faith in Him. And then the communion table. This is where believers in Christ gather to celebrate their union with Him and with one another. It's an opportunity for fellowship among God's people. So the local church is really comprised of the activities represented by these three objects. This morning, it's our privilege to participate in a third of these activities, the celebration of communion or the Lord's Supper. If you're not familiar with the Lord's Supper, this is a practice which traces all the way back to Christ himself. See, on the night in which our Lord was betrayed, he gathered with his 12 disciples into an upper room in Jerusalem. There they enjoyed a feast together. And then after the feast, Christ instituted this little ceremony. He took some of the leftovers of the feast, some bread and some wine, and he told his disciples to partake of these elements together with him. And Christ declared that this little ceremony should be practiced by all of his disciples during the entire period between his first and second advents. And this ceremony would serve a number of purposes. First of all, he designed it to serve as a reminder of Christ's dying love for us. So he explained in that first observance that the bread represented his body, which was broken for us. The wine represented his blood, which was shed for us. So we partake of these remembering the sacrifice of Christ. But then our Lord also designed this supper to build our anticipation for his second advent. He concluded it with these words, quote, I tell you that I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So these words communicated to the disciples that, yes, Christ was going to die, but then he was going to rise from the grave. He was going to ascend to his Father in heaven and then one day return to establish his kingdom. And he promised that he would feast with them again on his return. And so this supper is a reminder of his dying love. It is an expression of our excitement for his return. And then thirdly, it is also designed to spur our spiritual growth in the present. See, we are called to examine ourselves before we partake of the supper, to make sure that we are truly born again, that sins have been dealt with. As we consider one another, as we partake together in this supper, we remember the fellowship that we have with each other, and we're reminded of our mutual obligations to each other. And I believe that the Holy Spirit of God works among the people of God in a very special way as they partake in this supper. And so it serves these three purposes, a reminder, an expression of anticipation, and as a means toward our greater spiritual growth. Because of the importance of this supper, 
because our Lord instructed his disciples to practice it at regular intervals, here at Grace Baptist Church, we set aside our regular worship service four times a year in order to devote ourselves exclusively to the Lord's Supper. And here's how it's going to work today. First, you should have seen the table with the individual communion packets just outside the auditorium. Um, We're still observing some of our social distancing protocols, so we're not passing plates this morning. So hopefully, if you are a disciple of Christ, you picked one of those packets up. I'm going to ask you to hang on to that packet for the entirety of this morning's worship service. The service will unfold like a typical communion service, meaning it'll be a little bit different from a standard worship service. There will be songs that we sing, there will be prayers offered, there will be a sermon that is broken into pieces and preached throughout the service. This will set our minds on the the events of the Lord's Supper. Then as the climax of our service, we will partake of the elements together. We'll take out those packets, we'll peel off the first layer, we'll access the bread, I'll offer a few words about the bread. I'll offer a prayer. You'll hear the instruments play. And then we'll take it together. And then we'll follow the same procedure with the juice. And if you uh, feel like you are lost in this process, don't worry. We have the order of service in our bulletin. And then when we partake of the elements, just follow my lead. And uh, everything will go smoothly. Now, right now, we're going to have the instruments play To give us all an opportunity for some quiet prayer and contemplation, you can pray to God, you can read the words that will appear on the screen. Let's just prepare ourselves for the service that's about to unfold. So for our sermon this morning, we'll be in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through through 37. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 869. This passage contains the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're going to look at the content of the parable together, then I'll draw out some applications for us. But let's start by looking at the circumstances which prompted Jesus to offer the parable. We find that in verses 25 through 29. Here's what it says. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. So the lawyer here is referring to an expert in the law of Moses. And apparently this lawyer had been listening as Jesus was teaching the crowds. And and, uh, this lawyer was fairly impressed with what he was hearing from Jesus. And so now he decides to test Jesus' knowledge. Let's see just how well he understands the Scriptures. So here's the question the lawyer poses to Jesus. He says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now that's a really important question. It's one of the most important questions we can ask. How how is a man ever to enter the kingdom of God? How can we have eternal life? Now, if we read this question closely, we might also notice a a flaw in the question. He asks, what shall I do to inherit or to merit 
eternal life. It sounds as if this lawyer is asking Jesus, what are the works which must be performed which would earn us a spot in heaven with God? Right? What must I do to merit God's kingdom? And so Jesus uh, turns to the lawyer and he responds to the question with a question. He says, verse 27, or excuse me, verse 26, well, what is written in the, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So you are the expert in the law. What have you read there? The lawyer responds, verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. In another portion of God's word, Jesus explains that these two statements really do provide a summary of all the will of God. Our obligation is to love God with a perfect love, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then we are called to love God's image bearers with a perfect love. And truly, a person who can love God perfectly and love neighbor perfectly would himself be a perfect person. Jesus says, you answer correctly. If you can love God with a perfect love, perfectly keep his commandments, perfectly love his image bearers, you will inherit the kingdom of God. Now verse 29 says, But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Classic lawyer's trick, right? He agrees in principle with the statements, but he's going to try to get himself out of the full obligation here on a technicality. So he looks at himself and in order to justify himself says, okay, yeah, in the main, I love God and love neighbor, but, but let's, let's make sure we get our definition of neighbor correct, right? By my definition, I'm doing pretty well. What's your definition, Jesus? Now, it's clear at this point that the lawyer is not a saved man. He is a self-righteous man. And he is not trying to submit himself to the law of God, but rather he is using the law of God to justify his present behavior. He is willing to define the terms of Scripture as would best suit him so that he can hear from Jesus, yes, you are going to inherit eternal life. Well, Jesus is not going to have this. This is what prompts Jesus to offer the story or the parable of the Good Samaritan. This parable is designed to answer the question, who is my neighbor? Or we could also word the question, whom do I have an obligation to love? Let's see how Jesus answers. He begins the parable in verse 30. He begins, once upon a time, once upon a time, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
These two cities are about 15 miles apart, joined together by a dirt road. The most common way to travel that road was by foot. So in your mind's eye, perhaps you can picture this man. He has set out from Israel's capital city. He is heading out to another prominent city, walking along by himself on this dirt road. And it says, he fell among robbers as he traveled. Sadly, this was a fairly common occurrence in Jesus' day. I mean, the the cities were spread far apart. Um, You were very vulnerable if you're walking on foot. And so these these gangs would hide themselves along the road in these these, uh, rural places. They would watch the passers-by, and when they found one that, that looked pretty vulnerable... That's when they would attack. That's what happens to this poor man. He is walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, and I imagine about at the halfway mark, this gang emerges and they ambush the man. In verse 30 says, they stripped him. It means they they took all his clothes. They beat him. And then they departed, leaving him half dead Now, this was a very desperate situation. It's not like modern times where we all have cell phones or there are frequent travelers along our roads. No, this man is in real trouble. He is by himself in a rural area, many miles in either direction before he encounters a population center. There are not going to be many people coming by to notice him. He's in real trouble. But now verse 31, there's a ray of hope. It says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. Now this is good news, because we would expect a priest to stop and help a man in distress. After all, a priest was a man who had devoted his life to the study of Scripture. His, his whole life was taken up in sacred duties. I mean, surely a, a priest would take pity on a, on a man in his state. But notice what happens. It says, the priest saw him, and then he passed by him on the other side. So this supposedly pious man sees a fellow human being in dire straits. But instead of stopping to help, he just continues along his journey. Jesus doesn't fill in the details here. Maybe he had an appointment and he didn't want to be late. Maybe he was afraid that the gang was still nearby. He didn't want to put himself in danger. Or maybe he just didn't care about the man's plight. Whatever the, the reason, he passes by. It is clear, though, that the well-being of the desperate man was less important to this priest than his own personal well-being. And this is a point not to be missed. The ultimate reason why he passes by is because the well-being of that man was not as important to him as the well-being of himself. Verse 32, another ray of hope. Someone else comes along the road. This time it's a Levite. Now, who are the Levites? Well, Levites belonged to the tribe of Levi, and they were assistants to the priests. 
Um, It was the Levites' duty to keep the sacred utensils and the temple clean. They provided uh, the sacred loaves. They opened and shut the gates of the temple. Uh, They sang hymns in the temple. And then they did many other religious chores. So if the priest is not going to help, perhaps this Levite, uh, another supposedly pious man, maybe he will help. Well, look what happens. It says, The Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So the priest didn't help, and the Levite didn't help either. Now this half-dead man has been stripped of his dignity and his belongings and his hope. If a priest and a Levite are not going to stop for him, then who will? This man has no hope left. But then, friends, this is where our story takes a really interesting turn. Look at verse 33. It says, But a Samaritan, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So the priest didn't stop, the Levite didn't stop, but the Samaritan, when he saw the man in distress, he did stop. Now, who were these Samaritans? Well, to understand the Samaritans, you need to understand a little bit of ancient Near Eastern history. So back in the 6th century BC, that's about 600 years before the time of Christ, the Assyrian Empire was the world's great superpower. And the Assyrian Empire in the 6th century rolled its war machine into the northern kingdom of Israel, destroying that kingdom. First, they killed off all of the Jewish warriors. Then they identified all the best and brightest who were left in northern Israel. That would be the the teachers, the philosophers, the, the strong young men, all of those kinds of people. The Assyrians identified the best and the brightest, and then they carted them off and sent them to the Assyrian homeland. They did this because they feared that if they left the best and brightest in their own homeland, eventually they would rise up in rebellion against the Assyrian occupiers. So they would scoop them up, take them away. The thought was that would so demoralize them, they wouldn't mount any kind of a rebellion. Besides, who's going to fight when they're not even in their own land? So kill off the warriors, um, cart off the best and the brightest, and then the Assyrians would send in their own occupiers to take the place of those that they had removed. And in time, the Assyrian occupiers took Jewish women to be their wives. And in time, they had children by these wives. And the children were the Samaritans. So by blood, they were half Assyrian and they were half Jewish. And as the years progressed, this uh, Samaritan population developed its own culture. Um, They developed some unique religious um, beliefs and practices which were neither fully Assyrian nor fully Jewish. And all of these differences created some real conflict between the Jews and them. Eventually, all business between Jews and Samaritans ceased. The Samaritans could not be called as witnesses in Jewish courts. 
The Jews openly cursed the Samaritans in their synagogues. Uh, Samaritans were not allowed to convert to Judaism. And the Jews would not even travel through Samaritan territory. If they wanted to go from southern Israel up into the northern tip of Israel, instead of just naturally cutting through Samaria, they would go east, cross the Jordan River, go up on the eastern side of the Jordan, and then cross back over when they got to northern Israel. The Jews saw the Samaritans as traitors. They hated them. They wanted nothing to do with them. And the feelings were likewise. The Samaritans hated the Jews. And yet, in Jesus' parable, when this particular Samaritan came across this particular Jew, and when he saw the terrible plight the Jew was in, instead of gloating over the fate of his enemy, he took compassion on him. And look what happened next, verse 34. It says, And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, putting on oil and wine. In Jesus' day, these, these were used for med- as medicine. The wine served as a disinfectant. The oil was used to, to soothe damaged skin. So the Samaritan takes compassion. He applies medicine. He applies bandages. And then it says... He set the Jewish man on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And then the next day, he took out two denarii. That's roughly two days' wages for an average working man. He takes two denarii, and he he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. In short, this Samaritan restored the Jewish man's dignity, restored him to health, and he did so at great cost to himself. He put the well-being of this other man ahead of his own personal well-being. Well, then Jesus turns to the lawyer, and he wants to get the lawyer's response. He says, verse 36, now, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Verse 37, and the lawyer answered, the one who showed him mercy. Notice This lawyer is so disgusted with Jesus' story, he cannot even bring himself to say, the Samaritan, the Samaritan was the good neighbor. No, he just says, it's the guy that showed mercy. And then Jesus says, now you go and do likewise. So this parable was given in answer to the question, who is my neighbor? So who is our neighbor? Well, according to the parable, our neighbor is any human being that God should bring along our path. Friend, enemy, it doesn't matter. It's every single person that God allows you to encounter. And what does it mean to love our neighbors? It means that 
with every single person we meet, our internal response to them is to be affection. No matter who that person is, you never look at them with anger, with disgust, resentment, indifference, none of it. To love your neighbor means you see every single person you encounter and you, you feel affection for them. You are moved in your heart with compassion for them. And should any of the people that you meet have a real and pressing need that you are capable of addressing, it is your job to do so. That's what it means to love your neighbor. This is God's will for every one of us. Now, friends, as we ponder these remarkable truths, let us sing of them together. So the parable of the Good Samaritan is a lesson about our own moral obligations. We have an obligation to love every person we encounter, no matter who they are. And we're obligated to love them not just with words, but also with deeds. But you know, this parable also confronts us with our own moral failures. Because the truth of the matter is that none of us has or even can love God with a perfect love or love our neighbors with a perfect love. None of us can do this. In fact, to answer the lawyer's question, what can I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is you can do nothing. You are a sinner by nature and by choice. You couldn't even if you wanted to do this, and you don't. None of us is able to love God and neighbor like this. So this parable confronts us with what we are obligated by God to do, but also what we cannot of ourselves do. But you know what the really amazing thing is? It's that God has still loved us. Even when we haven't loved Him or His image bearers. In fact, just listen to the words of Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Here's what Paul says. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then listen to verse 10. It says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, will we be saved by his life. Listen to those descriptions of humanity. So unflattering, are they not? It says, we were enemies of God. We were ungodly, sinners, weak. We don't like to hear any of these terms about ourselves. But God looks at us and says, this is your state without me. But it says that even though we were in that state, God loved us. And he loved us with deeds. He saw us in our plight and he was moved with compassion for us such that he was willing to part with his greatest possession, his own son. He sent his son into the world to live a life of perfect righteousness, something we could not do. And then he sent his son to the cross to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
Then on the third day, he rose his son from the grave, proving the all-sufficiency of that sacrifice. This is what God has done for us. And so, if you think about it, God in Christ is really the ultimate good Samaritan. He's the ultimate good Samaritan. When God first made this world, it was a paradise. It's broken today because of our own sins. Now, by nature, we are estranged from God, even His enemies, and yet God in His love has met us here in our plight, and He has rescued us at great personal cost to Himself. God is the ultimate good Samaritan. I love how Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, explains this. He says, when you look carefully at the parable of the Good Samaritan, we realize that, quote, we are the poor distressed traveler. Satan, our enemy, had robbed us, stripped us, wounded us. Such is the mischief that sin has done to us. And we were by nature more than half dead. We were twice dead, dead in transgressions and sins, utterly unable to help ourselves, for we were without strength. But then comes the blessed Jesus, that good Samaritan, and he has compassion on us. He binds up our bleeding wounds. He pours in not oil and wine, but his own blood. He takes care of us and bids us put all the expenses of our cure upon his account. This is what God has done for us in Christ. And my friends, this is what we are celebrating on Communion Sundays. That, that God, out of his love, should give his son to us to remedy our situation. That he should provide the righteousness that we lacked and then make atonement for the sins that we committed. And this was done through his own body and blood. Hey, friends, let us sing of the deep love of God in Christ for us. And then let's partake of these elements together. Let's take those packets out now. Peel back that first layer. The scriptures tell us that on the night in which our Lord was betrayed, he first took bread and then he gave thanks. Allow me to give thanks for the bread before us this morning and then we'll listen for a moment as the instruments play. Our Lord, we do thank you so much for loving us and sending your Son into the world. We thank you for the perfect righteousness that he merited on our behalf for his all-sufficient sacrifice. Lord, we thank you for that body which was broken for us. Help us, Lord, every day to grow in our devotion to your Son. And as we partake, Lord, might your spirit have a special ministry in our hearts, drawing us near to yourself and to each other. We pray these things in his name. Amen. And Jesus broke the bread and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, our Lord took the cup also. Let us take the cup before us. 
Allow me to offer another word of prayer. Then the instruments will play again and then we'll partake. Our Lord, we come to you now thanking you for the blood which was shed for our sins. Blood of infinite worth. We thank you that the sacrifice that your son made was fully sufficient to cover over all of our sins, to give us a new standing with you and assurance of eternal life. Lord, would you help us to walk worthy of the great calling we have received. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Jesus lifted the cup and said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And finally, after the supper, the scriptures tell us that our Lord and his disciples sang a hymn. And so we'll conclude our service this morning with one final hymn. 